0: The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 66. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me your host Connor Hanratty. Last week We had Hamlet showing his enthusiasm and asking the players to perform a little segment of a particular play. We discussed his reference to the Hyrcanian tiger and saw some potential meanings behind that, but didn't quite get to the bigger question of why on earth Hamlet might pick this play. In all of whatever canon of dramatic literature might have been available for the choosing, why on earth should he pick this moment in this unnamed play? Let's take a closer look at the situation. Hamlet has called it Aeneas's tale to Dido, so it's happening in Carthage, where these two lovers met and fell in love. Hamlet has called it Aeneas's tale to Dido, so it's happening in Carthage, where these two famous paramours met and fell in love. It doesn't end well. Aeneas, the Trojan prince, has escaped the mad destruction of his city, one of few who did so and washed up in North Africa and fallen in love with the magnificent Queen Dido, and she with him, especially over the course of the several hours in which he tells his story and that of his city. This is Aeneas's tale to Dido. Eventually the relationship has to end, and indeed Aeneas will call her a Hyrcanian tiger in the course of the breakup. Aeneas is destined, you see, to go and found a new city in Italy, which will become Rome and so he doesn't have time to dally too much in North Africa. Dido is destroyed by this rejection, and she eventually kills herself. But what has this got to do with Hamlet? Actually, there are various arguments to be made. Hamlet is somewhat like Aeneas, in that he is the hero of his own story, from his own point of view, and of course from ours. He's also in love with a woman, but perhaps she's keeping him from his destiny, and the breakup already seems to be underway between him and Ophelia. He's also, like Aeneas, in a bit of a limbo, not quite yet doing what he feels he was born to do. And of course Hamlet is very much like Pyrrhus, since he is likewise dressed in black, though not quite coated in blood, and he's been visited by his father's ghost and sworn to revenge. Pyrrhus gains access to Troy via the deception of the Trojan horse. Is Hamlet likewise going to have to orchestrate some subterfuge to get to Claudius? We know, of course, that the answer to this is, yes, he will. And this is, for my money, why he has chosen this piece of text for the actors to perform. Shakespeare obviously knows how to write something to showcase an actor and his abilities, and this speech is a real showstopper. Hamlet has chosen the excerpt he'd like to hear, a segment of the play about the destruction of Troy. While the city burns, Pyrrhus, the son of Achilles, is on the hunt to find King Priam. And now the first player takes over from Hamlet and continues the story. And on he finds him, striking too short at Greeks. His antic sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Unequal-matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives, in rage strikes wide, but with the whiff and wind of his fell sword the unnerved father falls. Then senseless Ilium Seeming to feel this blow with flaming top stoops to his base and with a hideous crash takes prisoner Pyrrhus' ear. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed the air to stick. So as a painted tyrant Pyrrhus stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. But as we often see against some storm, a silence in the heavens. The rack stands still, the bold wind speechless, and the orb below as hush as death. Anon the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, after Pyrrhus' pause, a roused vengeance sets him new a-work, and never did the cyclops' hammers fall on Mars' armour forged for proof a-turn with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now falls on Priam. It's really tremendous, this celebration of language. It's been a while since I've read the entire text for an episode all in one go, but this speech is designed to keep its course, allowing the actor to gather momentum, and perhaps to prevent our enthusiastic fanboy Hamlet from interrupting. We get a very immediate sense of the action in Troy. As in the segment performed by the prince himself, we get swept in immediately. The first player performing this speech grabs our attention with his first word anon and keeps the story moving. Pyrrhus has found Priam, but the king is a rather piteous figure as he tries to fight the invading attackers. Anon he finds him, striking too short at Greeks. His antic sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. There are many instances where Shakespeare pokes fun at old men trying to fight in an army or in a battle, but here it's a heartbreaking image. The king is brandishing his sword, but keeps missing, striking too short. His sword won't do what the king wants, and eventually he drops it, and it lies there, refusing to obey him. The blood-soaked monster Pyrrhus, already seeming larger than he is, greatly outmatches the old king, but he's hell-bent on this revenge. Unequal-matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives, in rage strikes wide, but with the whiff and wind of his fell sword the unnerved father falls. In his fury, Pyrrhus strikes at the king, but misses, strikes wide but the force of his movement is so strong that the whiff and wind of his fell or cruel sword is enough to knock the old man over, and he falls. As ever, Shakespeare knows how to play a moment, and he gives us this brilliant image of the entire palace of Ilium, the other name for Troy, falling at the same time as the old King Priam does. Then senseless Ilium, seeming to feel this blow, with flaming top stoops to his base and with a hideous crash takes prisoner Pyrrhus' ear. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. Here Shakespeare is really showing off. The castle itself is obviously senseless, but it seems to feel the attack on Priam, and as it burns, it stoops with a hideous crash, and this noise seems to distract Pyrrhus, or take prisoner his ear. For lo, look! It's a great interjection for an actor. Just as he's about to bring his sword down on Priam, it seems to stick in the air. I love that the word he uses to describe Priam's white hair is milky. Rather than snowy or anything else, there's a tenderness and a vulnerability to this. Right here we have the entire crisis of this play. Hamlet, I mean, not just the play that the uh, player is performing. An angry son trying to avenge the death of his warrior father and at a key moment being forced to hesitate while we witness a trace of vulnerability in the victim. If there's any doubt about this being a central moment, keep listening. So, as a painted tyrant, Pyrrhus stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. Pyrrhus is suspended, almost like a painting of a warrior rather than the thing itself. He's no longer moved by his desire, or the story at hand, will or matter. And for this little moment, he does nothing. The whole world is crashing down, literally, and he's still. This is the eye of the storm, and that's precisely the image that Shakespeare gives us next. But, as we often see against some storm, a silence in the heavens, the rack stands still, the bold wind speechless, and the orb below as hush as death, anon the dreadful thunder doth rend the region. So, after Pyrrhus' pause, a roused vengeance sets him new a work. Just before a storm, often there's a kind of silence in the sky. The clouds stand still, the winds are quiet, as is the world beneath them. And then the thunder splits the sky apart. And so, after Pyrrhus's pause, his vengeance is reawakened and he gets back to the business at hand. And never did the Cyclops' hammers fall on Mars' armour, forged for proof a turn with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now falls on Priam. Again, this is Shakespeare showing off, this time with his knowledge of classical mythology. The Cyclops were a race of giants who were particularly skilled at making armour. Mars was the god of war, so presumably his armour was the best and made by the best, forged for proof etern, literally meaning eternally strong and resistant. So Pyrrhus brings his already blood-soaked sword down on King Priam with the same deadly and immortal zeal that these giants would have used to proof the armour of the god of war. It's interesting to consider just how much Shakespeare might have studied of the ancient Greeks. There's no question he learned Latin at the grammar school in Stratford, and most probably he read a good deal of the Aeneid by Virgil. His interest lies particularly in a few key episodes of that epic poem. The Sack of Troy, The Tragedy of Dido, a popular subject on the Elizabethan stage, and then the episode of Aeneas going down into the underworld. These are certainly highlights of the story, and it's no wonder that Shakespeare has recourse to them throughout his works. He only wrote one play featuring the Greeks, Troilus and Cressida, and was certainly more interested in the life of ancient Rome. There's a terrific zeal to his writing for this actor, the first player, and this description of the fall of Troy. I love that he doesn't bother giving the play or the playwright a name. He's happy for us to know that this is all him. There's plenty more of it to come, and we will conclude the actor's moving performance in the next episode. As ever, thanks a million for listening and be sure to visit the Hamlet podcast now on Instagram, where I've been sharing various images and photos to complement the show. Between that, Twitter and Facebook, there's almost as many social links as there are places to find the podcast episodes themselves, and for links to any and all of these, head to the website, which you'll know by now quite well, is thehamletpodcast.com. I'll speak to you next time.